Good morning, everybody. So great to see you here today. My name is Mike, and I work with our junior high students here at the West Chicago campus. And I'm Emily, and I work with our kids and students on our West Chicago campus. Over the last three weeks, we've been talking about three great ways to get involved. Serving on a Sunday team, with our Puente de Pueblo summer program, and hosting a neighborhood Bible club. There are lots of neighborhoods that already have a neighborhood Bible club, but Mike, can you guess where one of them is? Because it's, it's not close. It's pretty far away. Further away. Okay. Um, downtown Chicago. No, further. Further than that. Yep. Okay. Um, Los Angeles, California. That was really far, but even... I'm going for it. It's actually even further. Really? Yes. Okay. How far? 
is in Ecuador. Can you believe it? Pretty cool. One of our families is taking neighborhood Bible clubs with them to Ecuador. So if your family is interested in hosting a neighborhood Bible club in your community, you can get more information online at wheatonbible.org slash volunteer. Yeah, you know, if you're a little bit closer to campus than uh, Ecuador, maybe you're like in El Salvador. <laughs> no. Or West Chicago. Stream. Something like that. <laughs> During the 1030 service today, we are hosting step one of the growth track. The monthly growth track is designed to help you grow in your relationship with God and to connect with the church. So if you're new here, you're looking to connect with others, ask some questions about the church, or just to see you know, where you can start getting involved, you can get more details and then make plans to join us in the next session at wheatonbible.org slash next steps. We have one more awesome thing happening tonight and it's on our West Chicago campus. It's our all church prayer night. Join us on the West Lawn at six o'clock to pray for our church family. You can get more details at weedmaba.org slash next steps. That's all for today. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. We hope you have an amazing week. See ya. Good morning and welcome. We love because he first loved us. The two greatest commandments that we would love the Lord and love each other we can do because of God's great love for us because Jesus died on the cross for us and because of all that that means for our lives and for who we are in Christ. I still have not outgrown my need to hear every day that Jesus loves me, and may we never outgrow our need to hear that. Let's stand for our call to worship from Psalm 86. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Glad in the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you.
may be seated. As I get ready to pray, I want to thank you for your generosity to Wheaton Bible Church. Uh, this church has so many different ministries, as you know so well, going on both locally and globally. We have so much to be thankful for. One of the things I want to highlight this morning is our Monday night uh, ministry uh, for people who have struggles in their life. Maybe they've been through significant issues in the past. And so we have different groups, care groups that come together to support those adults. And then a ministry on Monday night that's been very dynamic for a lot of years for the children. Maybe children of divorce. Um, it is your giving that makes that ministry possible. As all our ministries. And I just want to say a big thank you. And may God bless us as we worship him as we serve him, and as we abundantly give to him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your glory that comes to us in our Redeemer, Jesus. To think about the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have a mighty king and a merciful Redeemer. And it's not an either or, but it's a both and. You and your majesty, you and your mercy, your gentleness, your suffering. And we marvel to think that Jesus has become ours through his death on the cross, dying there for our sins, that we might find refuge, that we might find forgiveness, that we might find salvation and life. And Father, we come to you this communion Sunday, aware that we uh, continually, chronically fall short. But we thank you that your grace is greater, that your love is bottomless. And so we worship you and we exalt you and we thank you for Jesus. And Father, on a morning like this, I know there's all sorts of people that are either watching or either here with us that are hurting. It could be a crisis, a health crisis. It could be a, a, a family issue. And I want to pray as we gather together as a body of believers called Wheaton Bible Church that you would bring comfort and you would bring healing and hope in the gospel. That in our dark moments, we would see the reality of a resurrected Savior. And that you, God, would bring grace and glory in our difficulties. And we pray all this in the great name of Jesus, who gave everything that we one day might have everything. Amen. I was asked to share this morning about the impact of God's love in my life. So I thought I would tell a story about something that happened to me a couple months ago. I was supposed to get my vaccination at the beginning of April, but I got COVID instead. I was very sick. 
and I was very scared. The sudden isolation made me feel alone. But God first showed me his love with all the messages, meals, and prayers that came from you, that came from the orchestra and long-lost friends. The outpouring of love and care was so unexpected and such a blessing. However, my COVID got worse, and by the ninth day, I had to go to the hospital. I had uh, CT scans, and they showed that I had pneumonia and COVID all over my lungs. My blood oxygen was too high to get hospitalized, so they had to send me home. And on the 12th day, when I came back, the doctor told me, your lungs are looking better. And he explained to me that my recovery would probably be hard. I would have to do some breathing exercises to help my lungs expand again after what they went through. At that moment, I was flooded with astonishment, humbled by his love and full of gratitude because I realized I've been doing lung expanding exercises my whole life as a flute player. So I asked the doctor, could being a flutist have prevented me from going on a ventilator? And he said, absolutely. I can remember being 13 years old, doing these breathing exercises, thinking that it was so I could be a great flutist. I had no idea how God was preparing me for this illness. He used my breathing exercises to save my life. That deep and amazing love had me in tears for weeks. His love for us is deeper than we can imagine.
Well, good morning. What a beautiful day, what a beautiful weekend, and what a great moment to look at God's Word. Amen? And that's one of the reasons we gather together on Sunday morning. Actually, there's a number. There's, we connect relationally, we worship through our singing, and we have the privilege of looking in God's Word. And the reason we do that is because to the extent God speaks to us, we see Jesus more clearly. And that is not just a beautiful thing, that is the thing in life, and that's what I want for you today. Rhonda and I were driving to the great state of Indiana, where I'm from. We had gotten around Chicago, we hit the Indiana State toll road, and traffic came to a screeching halt. Google Maps said it would be five minutes. But I don't know what that little man and that Google satellite was drinking that day. But five minutes turned into 55 minutes. We were going to Indiana because my mom was in the hospital. And I wish in that moment of bumper-to-bumper traffic that I could tell you that I said to Rhonda, look at all these cars so close together. Isn't this a beautiful sight? Uh, what a great moment for us to sing uh, some worship songs, but that's not what I did. What I did is I began to take my frustration out on Rhonda. Now, that was a couple of years ago. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were on vacation. We were sitting by the ocean. We were having a lovely uh, dinner, and Rhonda was giving me some constructive feedback on something I'd been doing, really something I had been saying uh, a couple of times uh, since we had moved to St. Charles about two months ago. And what did I do? Well, Rob turned it into an argument. Now, I can tell you all these things because I'm retiring. And it'll just make Hannibal look better. <laughs> but no, we all struggle with anger. Maybe for you it's traffic or taxes or your team or your kid's coach or your boss, your finances, uh, your so-called friend, uh, something in your family. For some of you, your anger runs cold, and by that I mean you internalize it, you keep it inside. Uh, but for others, it runs hot and you let it out. But all of us have our trigger points. And so today, when we come to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and the last two expressions or descriptors in verse 5, what Paul is telling us is anger at anything but sin and love are mutually exclusive. So let's look at these two phrases. Paul says love is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Now every text has a context and the context was the first, is the first century church in Corinth. Now, as we've been saying, as I've been saying through this series, uh, the church in Corinth was highly talented, highly gifted, wonderful spiritual gifts. A lot of people that have been really successful in, in the marketplace, people that could attract a crowd, people that knew their own mind. 
but they were also highly troubled. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses more problems in his letter to the Corinthians than he does in any other letter to any other church. Highly talented, highly troubled. And apparently anger was a battle in the church. Uh, apparently anger was pitting one believer against another believer. And so these people were struggling. And the Apostle Paul, knowing that anger troubles relationships like a storm troubles the ocean, and the longer it lasts and the more severe it is, the more people it sends into the deep, knowing that anger troubles our relationships, Paul takes this subject head on. But this is the love chapter. It's not the anger chapter, okay? So we want to look at this famous statement, the most famous statement on love and history. Not just in terms of throttling the storm in our souls, but how we can get to the sunshine, the calm of love. And so this morning to do that, I want to do three things. I want to talk about what anger is, at least what anger is here in Corinthians. Uh, then I want to talk about why we're angry, as we see here, and finally how we can get to love. So the what, the why, and, and the how. So let's start with anger. What is anger? Well, one way to define anger is anger is a self-centered response to a blocked goal. Where love is a feeling of goodwill, anger is a feeling of ill will. Your goal's been blocked, and you're not very happy about it. If love is giving someone a portion of your heart that you can't keep to yourself, anger is giving someone a portion of your mind that you can't afford to lose. And Paul is talking about anger to lead us to love. And what he does here is gives us two phrases, and this is the first. Now I'm going to go through these, and I'm going to spend a fair amount of time in this first section on what anger is and the problem in Corinth. And we're going to look at a variety of different passages to illustrate it. So Paul begins, love is not easily angered. In other words, uh, he's saying, stop being irritable, stop being touchy, stop being easily provoked with one another. Yeah, he's got this spiritual gift, and you don't, but don't get bitter. Oh yeah, he's of Apollos, and you're of Paul. What in the world is that? All sorts of anger uh, going on. But this term is more than merely being irritable. This is the English word paroxysm. It's not a word you use in conversation with your dog. But the word means an outburst of anger, an expression of a strong emotion. It, it means a fit of rage. And the reason I show you this is because the Greek word behind not easily angered is the Greek word paroxysm. And we get our English word because the Greek word has been transliterated into English. And my point is that we also have a range of meaning here, which from one end it's 
Uh, easily angered can refer to irritability. At the other end, it can refer to an outburst. Look at this. Acts chapter 15. They, now they would be Paul and Barnabas, two very godly men. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, sharp disagreement is the Greek word paroxysm. And here you have these two godly men that have this anger, uh, this outburst, if you will. Now, having introduced you to the word, the Greek word behind this, I want to illustrate this in 1 Corinthians. So this is chapter 3. Paul says, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Now, the word anger doesn't appear here. Paroxysm doesn't occur here. But what's underneath our jealousy and our quarreling? Why do we quarrel with one another? Because we're angry. Later, Paul, just a couple chapters later, Paul will tell us that anger was such an issue in the church at Corinth that these believers in their arguments were taking each other to court. No wonder Paul devotes an entire chapter to love, on love to these people. Never mind the fact that the Bible tells us over and over that God is abounding in, in love and slow to anger. But there's more. We have this second phrase. Uh, love keeps no record of wrongs. No record of wrongs. It's literally keeping no record of evil. Paul is talking about our habit when we're hurt, when we're disappointed, when we're frustrated of keeping score, of harboring grudges. That's the fifth time you've done that. Well, how do you know? Well, because I write them on my iPad. <laughs> That's precisely what Paul... Now, we don't necessarily put them on our iPad, but we keep them in our head. I'm so tired of you doing this over and over. Paul is talking about this. He's talking about you keeping score, you being bitter, you harboring resentment, you nursing grudges. And it's one of the most unloving things we can do in life. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, turn off that list in your mind. Stop it. And look what he says. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Now this is amazing. Paul is saying, instead of keeping a record of wrongs, be willing to be wronged. Now, Paul is not saying roll over and play dead. Paul is not saying uh, you should ignore sin, evil, abuse, injustice. What he is saying, as believers, you should stop keeping lists. Uh, you guys need to talk it out. 
You need to work through your problems within the church rather than taking them to a secular authority, to a secular court. And need I add, and hopefully you're thinking about this, that this is why your ability to forgive is so central to your spiritual life. So central. And not surprisingly, Paul talks about forgiveness. I actually love the way he expresses it early in his second letter to the Corinthians. Look what he says. If anyone has caused you grief, you ought, here it is, you ought to forgive, but not just forgive. Okay, I forgive you, but also comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Now notice this. Because Satan wants to outwit us. And we, you, as a believer in Christ, are not unaware of the scheme to imprison you in your anger, your list-keeping, your resentment, and your lack of forgiveness. Paul is saying love doesn't do that. This is a love chapter. God doesn't. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Now notice, not counting, not counting people's sins against them. God, in Jesus Christ, God never will count your sin against you. Why in the world do you count other people's sins against them? As a matter of fact, he's committed this ministry of reconciliation to us where we don't hold people's uh, uh, sins uh, against them. After all, Jesus didn't explode on the cross in fury, did he? And say to the people that were crucifying him, here's a thousand things you have done. You have been unfaithful to your wife, wife standing there, in this case, in this case. You over here, you're, a, you're just full of arrogance and, and greed. And nobody like it. Jesus didn't start uh, naming sins out loud. As a matter of fact, he, if Jesus started calling out our sins, he'd still be hanging on the cross 2,000 years later. God does not count your sin against you. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. It's the exact same thing Paul is saying to these believers in Corinth. It was a young church. These were young Christians. They had a lot going for them from a worldly perspective, but they had a lot of issues, and anger was one of their issues. So he's saying, don't be easily angered, man. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Forgive. And that's his point here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, I want to tell you a story. I was a brand new pastor. I was a young youth pastor. This was the first church I served in. 
I didn't know when it came to ministry the inside from the outside. I was a finance major in college. And so here I am, I'm in this church, and um, I'm there a little while, and suddenly I realize I do not see eye to eye with the senior pastor. And, and over time, I got angry and resentful about his rigidity. And I started keeping a list. Oh, here he goes again. And I kept this list in my mind. And then I made a mistake. Instead of going and talking to him about it, I went and talked to others about it behind his back. I've done a lot of unloving things in my life, but that was one of the most unloving things I've ever done. And it was a smaller church, and it came out, and we had this brouhaha, and I'll never forget sitting at a church board meeting one night. I'm there, the senior pastor is there, and he says to the church board, you know, Rob needs to be taken out to the woodshed and whacked. And I did. Now that didn't happen. And in a strange uh, turn of God's providence, uh, some months later, that senior pastor either resigned or was asked to resign. I can't remember. And I ended up in that church for nine years. But that does not excuse my sin. And so I had to come face to face, and I did come face to face in that moment with how unloving I can be. And I learned a couple important lessons, and, and one of them was that as, as a pastor, you're always going to have inside information, and you have always got to keep that information to yourself. You have to bridle your tongue, as James says. I didn't. And the second thing I learned is if I was going to survive and thrive in ministry, I had to learn to forgive all the time. And I have. And I do. It's the only way you can keep your wits. And God worked in my life, and I was able to own my sin. I was able to uh, name it. And I wonder this morning, are you easily angered? Do you have a list? And one of the ways you can tell is by what you say about other people when they're not present. All right, now let's pick up the pace and let's go on. Why are we like this? And the short answer is because we don't get our way. Because our uh, goal is blocked. So your three-year-old wants this toy, but you, as the parent, take it away because you know she might get hurt playing with this toy, and that three-year-old pitches a fit, a paroxysm. Now, you could use this word now with your three-year-old. 
Uh, Jack, when he comes home, want, when he comes home from work, wants things a certain way. Jill, when she comes home from work, is exhausted and, and, and tired, and, and she wants to relax and she wants some empathy. Both of their goals and their marriage are being blocked, and they're angry with each other. The 17-year-old doesn't want a curfew, but his single-parent mom says, no way, that's going to happen. And so he stops talking to her. Uh, we want what we want, and we get ang angry when we don't get what we want, when our goal is blocked, and there's other contributors like stress, a lack of sleep, or not much coffee. Or problems, uh, uh, unresolved conflict, issues that are just hanging like a dark cloud uh, over you. But here in 1 Corinthians, we discover two specific sources of the Corinthians' anger and their list-keeping. And the first is pride. Uh, I was amazed when I was doing some research in, in Corinthians to discover that the words boast and boasting appear over 40 times in these two letters. I mean, now remember, these are highly talented people, but boy, did they boast. Uh, Paul talks about not being puffed up in, in this uh, letter. These Corinthians had a pride problem because they were so uh, successful, so uh, uh, wealthy. So when it comes to boasting, we read in uh, chapter 3, so then, no more boasting about human leaders, whether you're Apollos or Paul, that's the context. All things are already yours. And then he says, your boasting is, I love the understatement, your boasting is not good. Your pride is sin. Now remember one verse earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, Paul says before he gets to not easily angered and not keeping a record of wrong, what does Paul say? He says, love does not boast, love is not proud. It's in our passage. Over and over, he's hitting them about their boasting. He's hitting them about their pride. Uh, the fin is anger. The shark underneath the water is the Corinthians' pride. It's our pride, your pride, my pride. Pride makes us self-excusing. It makes us self-aggrandizing. It makes us self righteous. It makes us other blaming. Pride makes us judgmental. We sit in judgment on others. We sit in judgment on the church. We sit in judgment on others that hold di different views. And it makes us unapproachable, unteachable, and often unreasonable. And pride was making the Corinthians angry. As a matter of fact, the reason I badmouthed my senior pastor was because my pride. But it wasn't just pride that is at play here in, in Corinth. It's uh, the Corinthians' self-centeredness. I love this verse. I have the right to do anything the Corinthians were saying. And Paul says, no, no, not everything is beneficial. 
I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, no, hold on. Not everything is constructive. Um, No one should seek their own good. But what? What does it say? The good good of others. Now, let me give you a a little context. First of all, uh, the Corinthians are not saying, I can sin in any way I please. Rather, this is a first century cultural issue that was unique uh, to this world, and it had to do with drinking food sacrificed to idols. And some believers that are being expressed, uh, that are being quoted here, were saying, you know, I'm free in Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as idols, so I can drink and eat whatever I want. If the meat was sacrificed, it doesn't matter. Idols don't exist. Others were saying, no, it's been tainted. I've got a stricter conscience. I can't do this. And, and these guys were uh, pouncing on their freedom and, and looking down on the people that were saying, no, we can't do it. And there was anger going on and conflict going on back and forth. It had to do with our, our freedom in Christ, and it became very unloving and at the heart of it was self-centeredness what is self-centeredness verse 24 it's you seeking your own good rather than the good of others and it was creating a world of hurt in the church we have a great illustration of this in the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? What do the priest and what do the Levite do? These religious types, these religious leaders that are all about appearance. Well, the man is beaten bloody and lying on the side of the road, and these guys just walk on by. They probably look the other way. Self-centeredness. The Good Samaritan comes in an incredible act of other-centeredness, seeking the good of others, verse 24. He gets deeply involved and rescues this guy from death. Do you know what self-centeredness is? Self-centeredness is just walking by. Yeah, I know he's hurting or, or, or she's got this but I'm really busy. And self-centeredness isolates us. It makes us hard. It makes us demanding. It makes us compassionless. And we have to fight against this because this is what culture does to us, left unchecked. And so my point here in the second section is we're asking uh, why the Corinthians were angry, why they kept their list, is saying if you look under the hood of your anger and your list keeping, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see pride and you're going to see self-centeredness. As I saw it in my life and still do. Now let's pivot. And let's go to how Jesus helps us with our anger, how how we can uh, become less critical, less complaining, uh, less resentful, and how we can become more loving as Christ is loving. And so I have good news for you as we come to this final section. And the good news is the good news of the gospel. What is the good news of the gospel? Is that Jesus Christ has come to make you new. To change your life. To transform you. And he will not rest until you are perfect in heaven. 
Jesus is constantly working using circumstances, using difficulty uh, to make you more and more uh, like him. And to the extent the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see the majesty and the mercy of Jesus, you know what's going to happen? You're going to change. And generally speaking, change in the Bible involves at least two factors, or I'm going to call them here this morning, two steps. And here's the first, that you look within. I mean, you look at your heart. And you get serious about your sin. Here we're talking about anger and, and, and list keeping. And you get serious about your need to change. I love the way Paul Tripp puts it. He says you can't look horizontally for what you will only get vertically. Do you get that? You won't be satisfied horizontally for only what God has created us to receive from him. But then he goes on and says, you can't wait vertically for what you've been called to do horizontally. Now, wait a minute, I'm praying about this, and I, uh, you know, I just got to let God take care of it. No, no, that's, uh, Paul says in his letter to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. Take your sins seriously, for God is at work in you. And that's exactly what Tripp is bringing together here in this last statement. Here, now hear me, and I, I, I love you guys, and I'm saying this in love. But you are responsible for your anger. You are responsible. I'm responsible for our list-keeping, our grudges, our judgmental, critical, complaining uh, spirits. And what I'm saying when I say look within is I'm saying see it in your life. Uh, think about what, what's behind it, underneath it, what, what causes it. Own it and confess it. Continually uh, bring it to the Lord. That's what I mean by looking within. So what does John say? John says if you claim to be out without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth isn't in you. That's a strong statement. And if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I ask myself the question, why in the world is there so little confession in our lives? Why is it I can go uh, a couple days and, and, and not confess anything? And the only answer I can come up with is because we live in denial. And denial is the refusal to admit the truth, the dark truth of our souls, because it's too painful. And so I have to conclude the reason we don't take our anger and our list keeping and our bitterness and our resentment more seriously and continually bring it to the Lord is because it's just too painful. It hurts too much. Really? Aren't we all quick to anger? Don't we all have triggers? Don't we all nurse grudges and harbor resentment and, and, and say things uh, we shouldn't say? 
If first, if these verses mean anything, they mean you and I as followers of Christ must develop the discipline of looking within. Naming, owning, confessing. But there's a second step. We look away and we get serious about the majesty, as I've been saying, and the mercy of Jesus. We get serious about the forgiveness and the family Jesus offers us through his death on the cross. And now I want to take you to one of my favorite verses that Paul uses to help the Corinthians change. It's found in 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is a formative verse in my life. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate Think about the Lord's glory or be transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. From the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see what Paul is saying to these angry, resentful believers? The key to transformation is contemplation on the mercy and the majesty, the beauty, the grace, the gentleness, the kindness of Jesus. If there's 365 days in a year, and I think there are, right? Right? Okay, no? Um, I bet you I quote this verse to myself about 340 times a year and talk about it to myself. The key to transformation is Jesus. Is you actively looking away from your sin, from yourself to him. So let me just conclude by telling you what this means for me, what it might look like on a given day for me. I tend to sometimes think or regularly think about the fact there's never been a single day in my life that I haven't sinned. There's really never been a waking hour when I haven't sinned. Yet God, in his infinite love and his infinite grace, his infinite patience, his infinite kindness, uh, that's how Paul begins in um, verse 4 in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. What does God do? God reaches down into his bottomless goodness while the angels hold their breath, by the way, and the music in heaven suddenly changes and God sends his son, and Jesus humbles himself and becomes a man and submits and surrenders and suffers and is sacrificed on the cross so that the moment you and I believe, we might find family. Forgiveness. Healing. And the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence and begins this wonderful work of transformation that will not end in this life. And to the extent 
that I am conscious of God's infinite love for me, my bleeding and dying Savior. Uh, Jesus bled for me. Jesus died for me. And what that tells me about his love and his patience and his goodness. And if Jesus can be loving and patient with me when I injure him, when I uh, ignore him, when I sin against him, how can I not be merciful towards others? You see, the calculus of heaven is this. I sin, God extends mercy. Person X sins against me, irritates me. I extend mercy. And I want that for you. 1 Corinthians 13 is a call to love. And to the extent we see the beauty of our Savior we will be less angry, less resentful. And one day, our love will be perfected. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done for us in your Son. We are amazed Uh, that in our darkest moments, when we're questioning your love, all we have to do is look to the cross. And we praise you this morning for the forgiveness and the righteousness is ours. And now, as we celebrate your love, your death and resurrection, in this communion moment, would you continue to speak to us In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and grab both the cup, and there's a cracker on the top. And let's apply this in this moment. Jesus has come to heal our hearts. And I want to invite you to in this moment to look within and confess what you need to confess and then look away to the beauty, the love, and the forgiveness that is yours in Jesus. So let's make this a moment both of confession and thanksgiving, adoration and worship. And would you bow with me and let's do that now.
Peter tells us, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because that's to which you were called. And that's exactly what Jesus does with you every time you commit evil towards him, every time you insult him by your indifference, your lack of prayer, your lack of confession. And when we see that Jesus forgives me, Jesus continually wraps his arms around me, then I am free to do the same with others. And that's the point of these elements. They point to that death, that love, that we might die to ourselves and love others. So let's take this bread, which is a cracker, knowing that Jesus said, this is a symbol. This is, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then uh, Jesus takes the cup, and uh, what does he say? He says, this cup is the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, the new covenant that Jesus has fulfilled in my love. Love, love. It's the love chapter. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we have done this together because it's in the body, it's in our relationships where our anger and our frustration and our criticism gets manifested. But it's in the body when by your spirit you free us that we can love one another and that the world will know we are your disciples by our love. Do that in our lives. Release us from the storm of anger. Bring us into the sunshine of a life of love. Amen.
Father, we marvel at this grace, completely righteous in your sight, because you have given us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, completely forgiven, because Jesus has taken his sin, upon, our sin upon himself. So we praise you for this incredible divine mix of righteousness and forgiveness that is ours because Jesus died. And we praise, we honor, we worship you. And Father, we want you to know we love you because of your extraordinary love for us. And all God's people said, Amen. Wheaton Bible Church, you are sent. You guys have a great day. Mm -hmm.